You are listening to a message from Parkway Pentecostal Church in Kurana. Today's message is part three of our series, Things That Jesus Said. If you would like more info on our church, you can visit parkway-church.com, where you can also hear these full versions of these messages in audio and video format. And uh, we just believe in uh, family blessing. And so we'll do that. So this morning I've entitled this message, Outlasters. Do you know that 10% of family-owned and operated businesses survive, don't survive past the third generation? I'm sorry, I said that all wrong. I should just read my notes. Do you know that only 10% of family-owned and operated businesses actually survive past the third generation? That's a true statistical fact in North America. Here's why. First generation is marked by hard work, risk, hands-on, understanding that without risk there's no reward, that without hard work and sacrifice there's no success. Usually there's an entrepreneurial spirit. Usually there's almost uh, a whole, uh, uh, the, the mom and dad are consumed with the family business and that leaks into the children. There's strong leadership, personal investment. So what happens is when the second generation, uh, they inherit something they appreciate, they absolutely are grateful, but they didn't earn it. So they have an appreciation because they see the hard work and how much of that business consumed their parents and the risk and sacrifice. They have seen it grow from nothing into something great, and they value what they've been given them, but they don't know how to create. They're not entrepreneurial and there's a fear of risk they watched the sacrifice that was made they've they appreciate what was handed to them and they're so afraid of losing it that they don't risk anything so they actually kick into a maintenance mode we want to maintain what dad we want to maintain what mom gave us because it was so important to them maintaining comes from uh, good motives but leads to an attitude of preservation so there's a loss of drive, no appetite for risk, and sees very little need for sacrifice. Third generation, all they've seen modeled is preservation and someone protecting something, which is status quo, and that's not inspiring. So they don't have a vision for that business uh, that's been passed on. They gladly receive the benefits, but there's no vision for future growth. In fact, there's not a whole lot of vision beyond them being able to live by what they've had. They can't see beyond themselves. They reject the value that the second generation had of appreciating uh, what was given and certainly of the sacrifice and service that the first generation made. So the third generation is marked by decline. So first generation, growth and strength. Second generation, preservation. Third generation, decline. This is unfortunately... True in many cases spiritually and of faith as well. Uh, in regards of, of values and faith, first generation believers consumed and passionate about serving the Lord. First generation believers, that person who doesn't really have a, a faith background, a background of trusting in Jesus, and, and they come to know the, the beauty and the grace of salvation, and they're passionate about serving the Lord. Their whole life is now redefined as new creations, uh, living for the kingdom, new citizens of heaven. Uh, no amount of sacrifice and faith risk is seen as too high or too high of a cost because it is all about Jesus. Their eyes are fixed on things unseen. They can't believe that God himself would send his son to rescue the 
them and lift them up and bring them into this new realm and this new understanding. First generation disciples are strong leaders and see their calling as ambassadors for Christ as a 24-7 calling no matter where life takes them or what life brings them. Does that describe anyone that you know? Hopefully it describes you. Second generation believers value the faith that's being handed to them. They have a great understanding and appreciation of the heritage that's been given, but they often see faith and church as, as, as uh, something to be preserved and something almost separate from their daily lives. They are the ones who will talk about the sacrifices their parents made. Man, my parents lived in church. They lived for the kingdom. They gave away as much as they had. They, they almost brag up their parents' faith, and they've received their faith, and they appreciate it. But faith is not something that is living and active and shapes their daily life and decisions. Yep, they go to church, maybe involved somewhat, but they see their relationship with Christ as something to maintain. I will do as much as I can to maintain my salvation and maintain what I have. Just enough is done to keep themselves and their family in the kingdom. The, the kingdom mentality and forsaking all for the cross of Jesus is seen more as a family heritage and a way of thinking and believing than it is a radical way of living. As soon as we make uh, picking up our cross and following Jesus a philosophy or a religious slogan and not something that defines how we live, we're probably second generation believers in our, in our thinking and understanding. So there's no real sacrifice, no real risk taking, just comfortable. Again, just do what we have to do to maintain. Third generation have not seen enough reason to serve Christ. They're not inspired. Do you know Why? Because if Christ wasn't worthy of the full devotion of their parents, why would I give myself to him? Faith as a belief system and, uh, and not as a daily impact will do very little to inspire them to radically serve Christ. See, faith became for the second generation and is perceived by the third generation as a belief system and a set of rules and a pattern of living with occasional worship and tendance, but no real daily impact where mom and dad live and breathe a passion and a love for Jesus. If the parents were religious but remained unchanged and transformed in their character, the third generation will see that as hypocrisy and they'll reject that. And I know, and I just believe that each one of us here today want our faith in Jesus Christ to outlast us. We want to be outlasters. We want to be people that can pass on our values and our faith and our love for Jesus to the coming generations. And here's the reality of it. The decisions and priorities of our lives today will have a direct impact on the generations to come. I want my faith in Christ to outlast me. I want the church to outlast me long after I'm gone after a pastor. I want this church to outlast us should Jesus not return long after we're gone and still be alive and well and thriving because there's generations that are constantly coming to faith in Christ. There's first generation people that we have yet to reach and that's our focus. Not about maintaining anything but continuing to just say it's not about us but it's about those who have yet to come behind us. And the decisions and priorities of our lives today will decide that. I, 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 if everyone can identify with the passions, practices, and priorities of first-generation followers of Christ, we will influence our families. We will influence our grandkids. We will influence our neighbors. We will influence the people that are coming up behind us. And I believe that, that the challenge of the Holy Spirit for this coming school year is not just to send our children and our grandchildren off to school, but to intentionally send them out as kingdom-minded people. 
I, I, know that, I know that there's people that homeschool and there's people that go to separate schools and all of that, and that's great, and I understand that, and that's fine, and this is in no way to disparage that, but we've always chosen for us to send our kids into public school because public school is just a part, school is a part, interacting with our neighbors, interacting with the people we work with, all of those things are just training ground for us to know how to be first-generation believers and stand for what we believe in in a world that's a opposed to Christ right so I believe that the challenge of the Holy Spirit is to send our not to send our children off to school but to intentionally send them out to send them out as influencers and people of character and compassion and it starts with us I believe it starts with us discovering who we are in Christ and starting to live by not by what we see or what we've been defined as or by any standard of the world, but by who Christ Jesus declares us to be. And then our children and those we influence will long to identify with the same God that has defined our lives. You know, I'm a fourth generation, no, third generation uh, believer on my dad's side. When my grandfather and my grandmother uh, came to know Christ, he came home, dumped the booze down, the, the sink threw away the cigarettes and said, that's it, we're serving Jesus. And they didn't have much when they lived in Scotland. They only had an apartment. But my dad tells me stories of how evangelists would come to the church and they'd say, you can have lunch at our house. You know, it had to go uh, five ways, but I guess it'll go seven ways now. They didn't make excuses for what they didn't have, but they surrendered what they have. They lived and they ate and they breathed as new creations in Christ. Never in full-time ministry, just a blue-collar worker. And yet in full-time ministry, because everywhere he went, he preached Jesus. He taught Sunday school. He taught the church. He preached just as a person who had a passion for Christ. And obviously my dad followed. My mom is a first-generation believer. And, you know, I followed in their footsteps. And now I thank God that there's a fourth generation of believers that are following Christ that my grandfather's great-grandchildren are serving Jesus today and it's not because of me it's because of him and the and the and the pace that he set and the trail that he blazed and the passion that he lived for I'm so thankful that he saw Jesus as being preeminent in his life because that's been passed on and passed on and passed on so now I've got the baton. I've got the torch. My wife and I have the torch. And we need to not be living to just maintain what's being handed to us or living to what we can give our kids. But we need to be thinking about our grandchildren who aren't even here yet. But they will be. Right, Mitch? One day. <laughs> one day we're going to have curly-haired Asian kids. It's going to be awesome. Right, Paul? Curly froze, but little Asian kids. Yeah, it'll be awesome. That's how we need to be thinking as outlasters, our grandchildren, not just our children. And unfortunately, in my life, there's times I've just maintained. You know why? Because there's things that I don't need to do in order to maintain my faith in Christ. But what, what am I modeling for my kids? What do they see in my life? So I want to talk about that for a few minutes. Is that okay this morning? Let's turn to Psalm 112. Psalm 112 lays out some priorities and principles that will help us to instill in our children the priorities and passions that will shape their lives as followers of Jesus. I want to stop for a minute. Just so you know, I'm not perfect. My parents weren't perfect, and my grandfather wasn't perfect. In fact, my parents have two sons. They had three sons. They had two sons that, were serving, that are serving the Lord and one son that is not. Sometimes... 
As people that want to live as outlasters, our children still make decisions. Do we understand that? How many of you know you can be the best parent and do everything right and still have kids? That Look at the prodigal son. Never said anything was wrong with the father. Prodigal son made, a, made his own decisions. So I just, I just need to put that qualifier in there. So Psalm 112. Praise the Lord. Blessed are those who fear the Lord, who find great delight in his commands. The word blessed means to be envied, truly happy, joy, filled, or favored by God. So true and lasting joy and blessing come as byproducts of serving the Lord. That's so important. Blessed are those who fear the Lord. And in that word blessed is, is the sense of truly content and happy. Many have bowed to the idols of happiness, the pursuit of material comforts, and self-identify with the philosophies and standards and practices of this world. Even faith, Christian beliefs, have become closely aligned with the pursuit of pleasure, wealth, material comfort, and whatever makes me happy. Because isn't that God's highest goal for my life, for me to be happy? It's not, by the way. If our true priorities... Listen, if our true priorities, not the ones we give verbal assent to, uh, but if our true priorities is seen in our time, our passions, our pursuits, are no different than those without Christ, then we will pass on to our kids a legacy of ambition, materialism, and hedonism, and it's unlikely that our faith will make the cut. Because we can say... Uh, all to Jesus I surrender. He is all I need. We can say things like that, but then pursue happiness and pursue the comforts and the things of this world and find our wholeness and our security in those things. And you know what? Our kids are smarter than we think they are, and they see that. They know what we're chasing. They understand what we're about. And so it goes on to say, Blessed are those who fear the Lord. That word fear means with awe-inspired reverence and worship him with obedience. That's living as a first-generation believer. And pursuing our identity as followers of Jesus Christ who have been saved, delivered, forgiven, set free. If we do that, then the awareness will come that we are not who we thought we were. We are new creatures. This is, this is who we are, and this is how Jesus... Jesus didn't die just to forgive us. He didn't die just so we could go to heaven. He died to make us into new people with a new perspective, living for a new purpose in a new life and in a new victory. We are creatures. This is who Jesus died to make us. We are creatures who are the light of the world. And we have a staggering authority and power over principalities and powers, circumstances, sicknesses, and can make history through our connection with God. It's impossible for you and I to pray and something not to change. You and I are the ones who are called to release God's will. Kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. You and I are the people that will decide the fate of this nation, the fate of our community, and the fate of our families because of our connection with God through prayer. Amen? Why live for the glory, acclaim, success, and acceptance of people when it's so fleeting? We've been given the same glory that Jesus has. 
And Jesus said that in John 17, 22, by the way. Paul said in Romans 6, 4, we are already glorified. We're risen with Christ. We are complete, meaning uh, perfectly God intended us to be. And the Spirit of God is daily working in us to make us into that mirror image of Christ. He's working through us to bring his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. We are the light of the world. And in darkness, uh, the light always wins. No matter how dark the world may seem or how dark our circumstances are, light always preeminates and is always preeminent, sorry, when it is turned on in the dark. As new creations in Christ, we are called to be holy as he is holy. Let's stop living close to the world as we possibly can and stop putting it on Facebook, by the way. Look, I'm a liberated Christian. I can do everything the world does and still be saved. That's just me. That's not, that's not in my notes. As new creations, we're called to be holy as he is holy. Without holiness, it's impossible to see God. And if we don't have a desire to see God, then the generation behind us won't have a desire to see God. Let's start cutting things out of our lives that are stopping God from manifesting in our lives, if not for our sake, at least for the sake of the people around about us. As new creations, we share in God's divine nature. My friends, when we start to identify with the incredible, wonderful new creation with a new citizenship and new purpose for living, we will know and understand what it is to be truly blessed, happy, content, and to be envied because the word tells me. Blessed are those who fear the Lord, who walk in obedience to his commands. Blessed are those who make God preeminent and find great delight. That word delight means like a deep soul joy in his word. True happiness is not found in the fleeting, shifting, unstable things of the material, physical world. True self-acceptance is not found in the opinion and acceptance of others, but they're found in serving the Lord. Friends, we got to stop we, we got to stop trying to teach our children that because they're talented and beautiful and people like them, that's where their self-esteem is. Our self-esteem is only found in losing ourselves and having no esteem and letting our find ourselves in who we are in Christ. So even if life brings setbacks, even if our children face rejection and don't make the team, can you still not make a team nowadays? I mean, they give out trophies if you stink, right? Well, he showed up. So we got to give him a trophy. <laughs> Man, if you could get trophies for stinking, I would have a room full of them. Listen, I'm not, I'm not, here's the reality. It's okay sometimes if our children fail, if they don't make the team. And dare I say, if they even face rejection. Here's why. Jesus said, the world's going to reject you if you're really living for me. And we can't show our kids that their esteem is found in those things. We, we need to be so kingdom-minded that I was telling someone the other day that I was poor growing up and I didn't even know I was poor. I, I just thought it was normal for pastor's kids to go get hand-me-down clothes from the hand-me-down clothes place that they gave to poor pastor's kids. I just thought that's what everybody did. You know what? Uh... Our parents, my, my parents did teach me. They, they taught me that it's not about the trophies you get, but it's about the crown of life. They did. They taught me that. They taught me that if I'm popular, I'm probably, probably not making the stand for Christ like I should. See, delight, that verse tells us, is found in his commands. In the Old Testament, when the word commands is used, laws or statutes, it's named. When those things are named, it's referring to the scriptures that they had. So the person who is truly blessed finds their purpose, 
their true fulfillment, their identity, and their lasting joy in their relationship with the Lord, and they delight in knowing that they can live to please Him. You know, I don't know how well I've modeled it uh, for my kids. If, if you really want to know, ask them. They'll tell you, and they'll be honest. <laughs> I don't know how well I've modeled it, but at the end of the day, my source of joy should be that when my head hits the pillow, if I say, today, Jesus, to the best of my ability, even in the midst of failures, I did my best to please you. And that's where my joy, the deep-seated center blessing is found in my life. So a couple of practical things in order to be outlasters and to pass it on that we find from that verse. Uh, number one, we got to live uncompartmentalized lives. It doesn't say, blessed are those who are religious, blessed are those who go to a house of worship once a week, blessed are those who read the Bible for 10 minutes in the morning and then forget what they read the rest of it. It doesn't say any of that, the stuff that we do that makes us religious. It says, blessed are those who fear the Lord. And uh, in every situation... In decisions and disappointments, let's live uncompartmentalized lives. Setbacks and victory, we model and interpret life through our new identity as followers of Jesus first and foremost. Instead of panicking or worrying when there are circumstantial setbacks or loss of comforts, we pray and we seek God first. We teach our children that prayer, our connection to God the Father through the Spirit in us and through what Jesus made available is the most important stance in every situation in life. There's no secular and sacred. Everything is seen from our new identity. Everything. So when people harm us and reject us, we've got to take them to the word. Listen, I know this is hard and I'm the worst for it. You can ask Jackie. I was ready to fight 10-year-olds in the playground all the time because they hurt my little Mitchie, you know, like... Trust me, it's hard. But I have a wife who would sit my child down and she'd say, first of all, there's always two sides to every story. And I don't assume yours is right just because you're my kid because I'm smarter than that, right? Uh, but we would take our kids and, and she would teach our kids. We'd have to teach them principles. Uh, and I can remember Jackie hammering this into our children. Okay, Mitch, you're being cursed. You're being, you're being mistreated. It's not fair. What does the word say to do? And it got to the place from which you go, I know the word says, bless those who speak ill against you. Pray for those who persecute you. Be kind to those who do you harm. Teach our kids to be kingdom people. Rather than reinforce their insecurities and their rejection by getting all angry and mad and no one's going to do that to my kid. Where's that eight-year-old? Because they've never met me before. We're reinforcing philosophies of the world that are going to bring destruction and disappointment in their life later. Jesus said this, do you want to live free? Do you want to, do you want to live in such a way where no one can ever make you a victim? Where no one can ever take the dignity that you have as a child of God? Jesus says, do you want to live like that? If a Roman soldier makes you walk a mile, if he forces you to do that, then you walk the second mile for him in the name of Jesus. If someone slaps you and wants to make you a victim, then you turn the other cheek and say, I'm doing this for Jesus and to take control of my life again. This is where tumbleweed matter. Crickets. We live uncompartmentalized lives if we truly want to be people that are blessed and we want to 
be those who pass on outlasters. Secondly, we interpret life, morality through the lens of Scripture. We don't see God's word or God's commands as burdensome and antithetical to happiness. We know that lasting joy, listen, not happiness, but lasting joy comes by being who God created us to be, living as he called us to live and submitting to his will. Happiness is momentarily. Lasting joy comes by delighting to live holy, set-apart lives that please God. Listen, I'm just going to make this statement, then I'm going to move on. There's a lot of people... There's a lot of people who have been living, who are going to die happy and find out they're going to lose out on eternity because they pursued happiness their whole life at the cost of walking in the, in the commandments of the Lord. Thirdly, we place greater emphasis on character than comfort, serving over success. We don't define ourselves by the money we have in the bank. We don't equate our worth or our child's with success or being the best or the most talented. Instead of protecting them from all failure, rewarding them for things they didn't earn, or refusing to allow them to learn from the consequences of their decisions by not disciplining them or rescuing them from consequences, we lovingly and gently use every situation as an opportunity to prepare them for adulthood and a life lived for Jesus Christ. And here's the result. Secondly... Verse 2, their children will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in their houses and their righteousness endures forever. Our children's success is a product of our kingdom focus. We are living to pass on the values and priorities that we have as Jesus. And our priorities today will directly impact our children's tomorrow. Because the person is living blessed uh, by pursuing God and living in his commands, here's the result. Their children will be mighty in their land. My children's success is dependent on what I do today. My grandchildren's success is dependent on what I do today. The generation that is yet to hear about Jesus is dependent on what I do today. Is anyone still with me? Okay, verse four. Even the darkest light dawns for the upright, for those who are gracious, compassionate, and righteous. Good will come of those who are generous and lend freely, and who conduct their affairs with justice. So a few words I want to highlight. Gracious, compassionate, and righteous. And 2 Corinthians 5.18 tells us, so we've stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. At one time we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view, how differently we know him today. So here's an illustration from the other day. We... If we want to be outlasters, we need to instill in our children... Uh, that they need to be people of grace, people of compassion, and people who are righteous, walking in the holiness that God has already provided through Jesus. Amen? So grace and compassion, two things the world needs in spades right now. So easy. You know, I was talking to Kevin, my brother over here a few Sundays ago, and we were talking about we want to be a church without walls because we serve a kingdom without borders. And, and I told him I'd give him full credit for this. And he says, yeah, and we need to be a people without labels. And I thought, that's, that's pretty good. Because it's still so easy to define people by their labels. And the other day, I was taking uh, my son into high school to register. And uh, there was a huge, and, and I don't, please, please understand, there was a huge, you could tell uh, the, 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 some of the kids who lived in the more uh, 
uh, less wealthy areas than Corona because they both go to that school. And you could also tell that some of the people were probably had very rough lifestyles. And my son made the statement, probably a little out of being overwhelmed because he's not in public school in Corona anymore. Boy, there's some sketchy people there, Dad. And I said, it's true. But I said to him, you know what I was thinking? We, we were standing, can I just tell you a story? Honestly, we were standing in line and there was Corona people in front of us, Corona people or kind of behind us. And all of those kids were dressed like probably, you know, in Abercrombie and Fitch and in Lululemon and all those kind of clothes. You know what I mean? Clothes that would pay a month of my mortgage, you know. And, uh, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. And in the middle of them was this one kid with their father. And I had to look four times to figure out if it was a boy or girl. And, and she was a girl because, because her hair was so unfashionable. And, and she had on, and I'm not making this up, she had on uh, probably a pair of pants that were handed down from the 1990s, 1990s painter pants. And she had on dirty shoes and an old stained T-shirt and, and a shirt over top of it. And her dad wasn't dressed much more. And as I looked over, I could see her eyes going all around where my son and I were standing like this, just doing this the whole time. And, and I'm telling you, like, this hair was wild. It, it was just out like this. And, it, and, you know, I just thought, this poor kid. And it sounds like I'm being pitiful, but I'm not. But I thought, this poor kid, like, every time a friend would walk by my son and high-five him, and, you know, the spunky little Corona girls, you know, they looked like they, you know, whoo! Uh, honestly, listen. Listen, I would, see, I would just see this girl kind of do this, you know. And uh, we get in the car, and the statement's made, boy, they're sketchy people, so this is what I said. And, and he didn't mean it judgmentally. Like I said, there was some rough, rough moms and dads there. Uh, and and I'm, I'm trying to be honest with you, and I'll probably cut this out before it ever goes out on the radio, because I'm just trying to be honest with you in this house, just for the point of illustration, Okay. And I said to my son, this is what I said. I said to him, did you do anything to be as blessed as you are? Nope. I said, then most of those people didn't do anything to be as unblessed as they are. They inherited that. And we, we talked a little bit. And, you know, my prayer has, this has been my prayer for him since, he, since, since uh, the beginning of the week. And I can tell you this, I prayed every day, Lord, when my son goes into school and when the kids from Parkway go into their schools, I just pray, Lord, that they no longer see them and us, sketchy or non-sketchy, First Nations, white, black, everything in between. David, that was for you. Uh, They would just see everybody through the eyes of compassion first. Grace second. And righteousness third, which means this. It doesn't matter if you're wearing $400 worth of clothes or $4 worth of clothes from the second hand store. If you are without Christ, you're without Christ. 
And we need to be guided by compassion and grace. And my friends, we need to teach that to our children. You know, there's something that I say all the time to the staff. And I really believe that uh, if we could learn to evaluate every person with this starting phrase. Before we ever make a judgment, before we ever assume anything, start with this. And I, and I try to do this, and I fall down sometimes, just like everyone else, but everybody has a story. So in John chapter 4, Jesus meets the Samaritan woman at the well. Do you remember that story? And, and Jesus, through the word of knowledge of the Holy Spirit, says to her, Yeah, you've had five husbands, and the sixth one you're living with isn't even your husband. How many stereotypes are there in that story? You know what I mean? How many, how many, yeah, I mean, you know what I mean? She's a loose woman. She's slutty. She can't keep a marriage together. There's one common denominator in all of those. Like, how, right? How many things can we say? The other thing that we don't realize, too, is that in her society without a husband, she would have no means of care. So, She's probably hooking up with husbands just simply because her and her children without them would be destitute to a life of begging or, honestly, a life of prostitution. And so, uh, how many stereotypes did this woman actually have? And I'm not going to get in any more, but how many was there? But Jesus comes along. And I believe Jesus knew she had a story. And I believe Jesus flowed in grace, compassion, and righteousness. And so what did Jesus see? Everybody would have seen all of the stigmas. By the way, the reason Jesus met her at noon was the ladies would get water. This is in the Middle East in the morning and evening. She was there in the middle of the day probably to avoid all of that. Why? Because of all the labels and all of the stereotypes. Jesus meets with her. Has a conversation with her. And I believe he chose to say everybody has a story and he knew that her story was this, that here was a woman who had her hopes dashed, her dreams shattered, her heart broken, disappointment, not just once or twice, but five times. She was so ashamed, she's there in the middle of the day to get water at the hottest point in the day in the middle of East. So she was ashamed and avoided the other women. I believe that Jesus was able to see someone who, despite their brokenness, had a spiritual hunger and was engaged with Jesus about spiritual things, and his attention brought value and meaning to her life. And after her first encounter with Jesus, it says she goes into town and says, I want you to meet somebody that knew everything about me, and she brings half her village back, and they put their faith in Christ. There's her new identity. Why? Because one person chose to see her through the lens of grace and compassion and righteousness without the label. And that's who I want my children to be. If we can model grace, seeing ourselves realistically in our, as a first response, flowing in compassion instead of distrust, judgment, or labels. And compassion, grace, and righteousness lead to generosity. Uh, because verse 6 tells us, Surely the righteous will never be shaken. They will be remembered forever. They will have no fear of bad news. Their hearts are steadfast, trusting in their Lord. Their hearts are secure. They will have no fear. In the end, they will look on their foes with triumph. Uh, their righteousness endures. Oh, they have scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Their horn will be lifted high in honor. Imagine if our children caught the reality that it's more blessed to give than receive. That it's not. Can, can you imagine raising a generation that says it's not about me, but it's about others? 
Can you imagine raising a generation that can see people through the lens of compassion and grace and realizes that because compassion and grace are such a part of my life, man, I just need to give. Uh, A couple of years ago, my youngest son uh, was coming home hungry all the time. And I finally said, why are you hungry? And he says, my friend so-and-so doesn't bring a lunch to school because their family doesn't have a lunch. He was just giving it to them. So I started to pack more in his lunch. But you know what? I just said, God, I bless that spirit in him. Because I bless it because there was 30 kids in that class. And only one or two said, there's a kid sitting here without a meal every. Right? And uh, so, surely the righteous will never be shaken. They will be remembered forever. How many want to outlast your life? How many want to be outlasters? Imagine living and passing on to our children a steadfast confidence in the Lord that every circumstance, sickness, disappointment, rejection cannot take away. Don't you want to pass that kind of confident, joy-filled, contented life on to the next generation? I want my faith to outlast me. When, when I grew up, when I grew up, like I told you, uh, if someone can go get the children. Uh, when I grew up, my parents faced things like no food in the cupboards, no clothes for their children. And yet, you know something? Uh, and they also, I, I'm going to tell you this. Years later, I found out they were deeply hurt by the churches they served many times. But you know what? They passed on to us a love for God's house because they never came home and whined about what went on in the church. We thought church was heaven on earth. We didn't know they were beating the snot out of mom and dad sometimes. Why? Because they weren't just living in the moment. They were trying to pass something on to us, a love for the house that consumed Jesus, that consumed them and called them to serve. And there was times we had no food in the cupboard, but I didn't know until years later. My parents would just say, praise God, somebody left food in the porch. As a kid, I didn't clue in and that meant, oh, that meant there was no food in the cupboard. (laughs) They passed on a faith and a confidence in the Lord that didn't allow them to be shaken when they were faced with lack and didn't allow them to be shaken and respond abusively when they were abused. I learned that stuff all by myself. And God had to deal with that in my life. And so I am, listen, I am thankful for parents who aren't perfect, but parents who are outlasters. They, they, they passed on their faith in Jesus to me. And so uh, we're going to pray in just a minute. There's a song that's been on my heart. Oh, so I, I just want to end with this. It's never too late, by the way. 15 years old, a rebellious preacher's kid chasing after the things of the world. Not going to tell you what I was getting into, but none of it was good. I was one of those sketchy people my son talked about, and that's true. Uh, I was one of the kids that other parents said, stay away from him. <laughs> and but at 15, at 15 and 16 years of old, but at 15 years of old, I made a commitment to Jesus Christ. And I can remember that through, through that that weekend of surrendering to Christ, one of the things that I said to the Lord, and I can tell you this before the Lord, one of the things I said to the Lord was this. If Jesus was worthy, I said, Jesus, if you were worthy of my parents' devotion despite all of the stuff that I know the church has given them, because when you get older, your parents protect you from it, but you start to see it for yourself, right? I said, Lord... My parents have given themselves to you despite being dumped on and treated awful and doing without. And Lord, if you are truly that worthy for them, then you know what? You're that worthy for me.
outlasters. And like I said, I have a brother who still has to come to that conclusion. But I came to that conclusion because my parents live for the principles of Psalm 112. That, it's, that there, there's a blessing that happiness can't bring. The happiness that all my friends were finding stuff in, they were getting Atari and I was getting Pong. You know, I was really hard done by, you know what I mean? Because we just didn't have all of the things that people had happiness in. But my parents had a joy that nothing could take away and a righteousness that they live for. Thank you so much for listening to our message. We hope it blessed and encouraged you. If you like what you hear, we would love to have you join us here on a Sunday morning at 10 a.m. on Murray Drive in Corona.